This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Today's episode marks a milestone for all of us here at Second Story. The 200th episode of this very podcast. And I myself have only been its producer since episode 176. So I want to extend my gratitude to all my podcast ancestors who helped us make it this far. In celebration of this milestone, we wanted to give you all an extra special episode. What you are about to hear is a full Second Story show, four stories in total, featuring four of Second Story's illustrious company members. But these stories were all written and performed five years ago. The world and our tellers and their lives have all changed quite a bit since then. I asked each of our tellers to reflect on their story and what's different for them looking back at it today. Keep an ear out for these reflections between stories. Now, I've talked long enough, so let's get on with the show. Recorded live at Main Stage in Chicago in 2015, please welcome to the mic our first teller, Julie Ganey. July afternoon. I had the windows down and the Cindy Lauper turned up as I rounded the curve at the bottom of Crystal Heights Hill in my parents' 1984 Plymouth Volari station wagon. The lights on the patrol car only rotated once or twice before they caught my eye in the rearview mirror. I felt a plummeting in my gut and I pulled over onto the gravel shoulder before the single obligatory whoop of the siren ended. I recognized the officer as he got out of the patrol car behind me. It was the pudgy one, the one with the chip-style sunglasses and a few wisps of hair combed over his shiny head. He was better than the one with the bad teeth and much better than the officer who was the father of Bruiser who was in my civics class. I turned off the car and put my hands at 10 and two, just like my dad had taught me. The car ticked as it cooled down. I heard the cicadas chirping in the trees. In the rear view mirror, I watched the cop trudge toward me. When he reached my open window, he simply said, Miss Ganey, Yes, I answered, trying to appear curious, though both of us had been through this ritual with each other before. He said, I had a feeling that was you. The first time I was pulled over for speeding a few months after getting my license, I cried. The second time I think I cried too. The third and fourth times, I tried to argue a little, like, 40 and a 20, really? I I don't think I was going that fast. The next couple of times I pointlessly argued for a warning instead of a ticket. Now on the doorstep of my seventh speeding ticket in a year, pulled over by Officer Pudgy at the bottom of Crystal Heights Hill, I'd arrived at acceptance. I had a problem (laughs) in more ways than one. 
My senior year of high school, I was an A student, vice president of the National Honor Society, and the organist at my church. I was a virgin, I didn't drink, and I'd never smoked pot. And over the course of one year, I got so many speeding tickets in my hometown of Crystal City that the state of Missouri was threatening to suspend my license. Any driver who racked up 12 points on the record in the calendar year would merit a one-year suspension of their license. If you were under the age of 21, it was a three-year suspension. Traffic violations were assigned points depending on their severity, and speeding tickets were generally one or two points depending on how over the limit they had you clocked. Where I grew up, in Jefferson County, getting a driver's license was akin to a religious rite of passage. I mean, plenty of kids got to skip school on their 16th birthday so they could get a license the second they were legally able. They showed up at the county DMV and their old Delta 88s and Junker pickups with an adult in tow and a cursory knowledge of the state driving laws. For our parents, Another driver in the family meant freedom from ferrying kids every place. For us, it meant freedom from supervision. I mean, way before cell phones, a car was a portable pod of privacy. Finally, the means to get completely out of your parents' purview, if only temporarily. My parents had more restrictions than most. But I got my license two days after turning 16. My dad was the one who had taught me to drive. With the Missouri rules of road in hand and the passenger seat beside me, we spent Saturday mornings in the Kroger parking lot and out on Route 21 until I received his stamp of approval. And his approval meant something. My dad was a very conscientious, meticulous driver, and I was the eldest of four, a trusted role model, and soon to be transport for my siblings to school. And yet, here I was at the bottom of Crystal Heights Hill about to get my seventh speeding ticket in a year. The one that would surely push me to 12 points. My parents were already pissed and dismayed what are you thinking? My father fumed back in March when he opened ticket number four and the notice from our insurance company raising his premiums 20% arrived in the mail. What the hell is wrong with you? He demanded in June when the notice arrived revealing that I had racked up 10 points on my record. I don't know, Dad. And I didn't. I mean, though I was nervous about leaving home for college, it is exactly what I had dreamed of for years. My parents didn't put up a fuss at my choice, moving to Chicago for an acting conservatory where they could cut me from the program at any time, despite how expensive it was. You know, they were on my side. They were pretty reasonable. I had no idea why I was sabotaging my last summer at home. Well, this is ridiculous. My father had said, throwing the letter on the kitchen table, this is so dangerous, Julie. You're lucky you're going off to Chicago where you won't need a car. I could tell he was worried, but also that since he was the one who had taught me to drive, that this failure felt personal for him. You're finished driving for the summer. 
he said with what sounded like satisfaction. What? I have to drive. I have to get to work, I said. And it was true. I had a sought-after job making $18.75 an hour on the night shift at a glass plant that made bottles for Anheuser-Busch. All the money that I wasn't secretly sending off to pay speeding tickets, I was socking away for college in the fall. He said, you can ride your bike to work. What? It's too far. And it was too far. Ten miles or so out on the highway, he conceded with a disgusted shake of his head, well, you're not allowed to drive the kids anymore, and you're only driving to work and back. I felt my face flush. I mean, I'd gotten in trouble before, of course, but this felt different. Being responsible, not causing trouble, exceeding expectations, that was my currency as a kid. That was the contract between my parents and me. And I was shredding it. I knew that my behavior defied logic. I got most of my tickets in town, but the roads out further between towns, they were really dangerous. Two lanes, curvy, hilly. A couple of high school kids were killed in car accidents every year. It wasn't that I didn't care. I tried to remember to slow down. I did. But I was in the grips of something, something unconscious, subconscious, took over. And it wasn't just the thrill of going fast. Each time I was pulled over, I would have this sensation of coming back into myself, and I'd think, oh, dang, I forgot. I did it again. <laughs> I longed for a clean slate. If I could just start over, start fresh, I knew I would be different. I mean, maybe you've had a period of time like that where you're on the wrong track, and only at the last minute when it's too late, you realize, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing that I said I wasn't gonna do anymore. Why am I doing this? And maybe later you realize why. What you were trying to say with that behavior that you couldn't find the words to say out loud. Like, I'm unhappy, or I need you to listen to me, or hey, I need you to be able to survive me messing up. And I need to know I can survive disappointing you. As the summer wore on, I was on the outskirts of my parents' good graces. My father especially seemed more formal with me. I dedicated myself to being more patient with my brother, to mowing the lawn without being asked, to babysitting my sisters cheerfully. But after that ticket on Crystal Heights, after I knew my license was going to be suspended, I put all my energy into trying to intercept the notification letter from the DMV. <laughs> because I worked nights, most of my afternoons had already been devoted to perfecting my tan, laying out in the backyard. But after that final ticket, I moved my lawn chair, my fresca, and my glamour magazine to the front yard to better intercept Virginia, the mail lady. Now, my parents were both teachers, home in the summers, reading and gardening. They were letter writers, so they paid attention to the mail coming, too. But I moved my tanning operation closer to the street so that each day, as Virginia would come down the hill, I could peel myself from the plastic lounge chair and get to her first. What's going on? My mother would ask suspiciously, poking her head out the front door. 
the sun's better out here, I'd say. And then Virginia's mail truck would clatter down the hill. Hi, Virginia, I would pipe up as she handed me the mail. Hello there, she knew. She knew I was up to something as I avoided her eyes and turned away to furtively rifle through the stack. But the day the letter came, of course, I wasn't tanning in the front yard. I was at a birthday party for Denise Kissed, and I came home to find the letter open and displayed on the credenza in the foyer. This is an official notice of the suspension of your driving privileges for a period of three years as authorized by Section 1532C of the Missouri Vehicle Code. My father appeared in the living room, not yelling as expected, but quiet, lips tight. I'm sorry, Dad. You need to find a way to get to work for the rest of the summer. And I'm taking you off our car insurance permanently. You're on your own. Going away to college that fall really did feel like a fresh start. I had no need for a car in Chicago, and I rarely thought about my besmirched driving record back in Missouri. But once you dabbled in a certain area of criminality, <laughs> you create this little soft spot, a vein of vulnerability where delinquency can squeeze in. Shortly after graduating from college, I found myself working at a specialty food store on the corner of LaSalle in Chicago. On one of my first days there, the owner held out the keys to the store's van and offhandedly asked, you drive, right? After the slightest moment of consideration, I answered, I do drive. Because I did technically drive. I mean, even though I had never gotten a new license in Illinois. It was ridiculously stupid and illegal to drive that van four blocks back and forth from the warehouse almost every day that I worked there. But something actually had changed. I was careful. I was aware of what I was doing every single nervy minute I was in that van. For the first time, I never thought of anything other than driving. I never hurried or got distracted. A few months later, I got an actual Illinois license. No questions asked. And now, red light cameras have collected some tape of my Corolla, it's true. I've gotten a speeding ticket or two. I don't worry about it too much. And I'm sure my father doesn't either. We're both a little less perfect and a little more conscious. Falls from grace are impossible to avoid. Clean slates and fresh starts are hard to come by. It's okay. We can take it. When asked to reflect on her story, Julie had this to say. I hear this story through a very different lens now than when I wrote it five years ago. Now, I can't hear the phrase, pulled over by a cop, 
without a list of names in my head. Walter Scott, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, and an awareness of the privilege that being white afforded me not just back when I was 18 and interacting with the police, but always. The fact that I didn't acknowledge this when I wrote the story back in 2015 tells you something about how nascent my understanding of that privilege was at the time. If I were to write this story now, it might chronicle the same events, but it would probably be about something else. The other thing that's changed is that my daughter is now a 17-year-old with a driver's license. And that fact has shifted my alliance and empathy to my parents almost entirely. Vehicle safety is serious business, people. If my 17-year-old came home with two speeding tickets, much less seven, she wouldn't be driving. I mean, my nerves simply couldn't take it. Our next story connects to Julie's so well that I, I really don't want to say much to interrupt it. Think of what you're about to hear as another side of the same coin. Please welcome to the mic, Margaret Marion. In college, our favorite hangout spot was the A-level of the library. At the University of Chicago, Thursday night hanging out meant drinking soda ordering tons of Hyde Park cuisine, and lugging your comforter to the library for overnight study. The A-level, the basement floor of the library, this is the place you don't read about in the campus brochures. It's dirty and muggy, and resembles more of the Hogwarts pub than a library. My friends and I would set up camp on the dry spot near the air vents. But this Thursday night in early March of 2010, the Alpha Delta fraternity had already snatched all the good seats. And they sat there cackling at how cool they thought they were studying naked wearing their snow boots. <laughs> I rolled my eyes. Picture me in my second year of college wearing long braids and my favorite tank top that read Danger, Educated Black Woman. <laughs> <laughs> There was me and all of my friends. Together, we probably made up a third of the black students on campus. We stuck together, laughed at all the same jokes, and we shared that familiar head nod of acknowledgement from across the quads. We settled for an awkward, wobbly table in the center of the room. The A-level was crowded. There was music playing somewhere. Everybody was laughing and debating marks. Again, the U of C version of a good time. And suddenly, the doors of the stairwell burst open, and in walked this fiery, red wig-wearing receptionist from the floor above. There he is, right there! And she stepped aside as the police officer marched in. You need to come with me now. The officer sounded wimpier than he looked. He was a relatively young black guy with a goatee. He walked straight up to our friend Marcus, who we had just head nodded on his way through the door just a couple minutes before. You need to come with me now. The officer barked with the authority of a policeman's badge. He seemed to be standing right on top of Marcus now. Is there a problem, bro? We all stood silent. Time froze as we asked each other questions. And I had an aha moment. I realized that we were in the modern day display of the black on black power struggle. The social remnants of what would happen when the black slaves were giving jobs as overseers of other black slaves. The officer had to show he was in control for all the white folk watching. Why? What's going on? 
Marcus was cut off mid-sentence by the officer's swift maneuver. He grabs Marcus by the arm and twisted it forward, pushing his shoulder into the table and slamming him into the desk. The officer pressed him there, pressing his hand into his shoulder and twisting his hand. Officer, is that necessary? Is he being arrested? My friends and I stood around the scene. I have the right to be here. I have the right to know why I'm being arrested, Marcus gasped. I couldn't see his face anymore, but I could hear his black beads scrape the table under him. I grabbed my phone. Instinctively, I dialed 911. I, I understand how ironic that is, that I called 911 on 911. Growing up, I had conflicting messages about the role of police. I'd always call when I felt afraid, when my house caught fire, when my aunts were in a fist fight, when my mom got chased by a rat and screamed like somebody was killing her. And then I got 911 called on me when I was 13 and got caught stealing from the beauty supply store with my best friend. The police did nothing in those occasions, and so in the library that day I was caught off guard and I just called instinctively out of habit. I hadn't fully realized until the lady answered the phone. Ma'am, there's an officer here, officer number 9745. He's using excessive force, this has to be illegal. The officer had Marcus pinned to the ground, stepping into his back with his knee and pinching his shoulders behind him. I don't know why. It can't be that deep. We're in the library. He's a student. He's unarmed. I'm fuming to the receiver. The operator cut me off and transferred the car. Sir, I have rights, I hear Marcus saying. My friends are yelling over the crowd, hey, y'all seeing this? The officer hoisted Marcus to his feet, and he was sweating and everything like he'd been the one with his face smashed into age-old carpet and 200 pounds of 5-0 holding him down. Hello? I had been transferred to the deputy chief of the campus police department. I could tell he was a brother from over the phone, so I start spewing again, and he listens attentively. He told me to slow down, told me to write everything I saw and to list everyone there. He took all my information and made a report. I hung up feeling energized, and I joined my friends circulating a petition that we drafted right then and there. It read like a witness statement, and ended with the charge on UCPD's aggressive and racially motivated policies. Over the next two days, my friends and I went about organizing. We recruited parents and alumni to write letters to university admin. We made a Facebook page. Until then, it seemed like most people agreed with our cause, but our page was overrun by negative posts, mostly by this white fraternity. We were told we were gonna be shut down, that our show was over, that we were playing the race card. This was the same frat who had ordered six dozen postal supply boxes to be delivered to their frat house to the name Regan Togoff, which actually backwards reads faggot nigger. The post jammed our entire page, shut it down effectively, and overwhelmed my feeling of excitement over what we were doing. I remember feeling like we were hanging onto a raft in a deep sea and partying boaters were just passing us by. We held the forum in the same room we held our annual heritage ball and welcome dinner for minority students. We felt powerful and connected in that space. That day, Dozens of teachers, students, and alumni crowded into that room to address the deputy police chief. But I remained quiet and sulking. The frat guys weren't there. We were preaching to the choir. I sat silent and passed the mic around. 
One gentleman, old, tall, and balding, told a story about how some 25 years before the same had happened to him that had happened to my friend Marcus. He'd been arrested for trespassing in his own dorm. More personal stories followed of police harassment of students of color, of LGBTQ students of color, of police routes, of excessive force and unnecessary handling. I felt then that there were more and more and more rafts out at sea. We were people shouting silent screams, just boats passing by. The room hushed as Marcus gave his account. He said he and his friend entered the library laughing as they passed the receptionist. She prompted them to be quiet and they kept going as they headed down to the A-level. And so she called the police and the police forcibly removed him from the library and he spent the night in jail for resisting the arrest. Now I can understand how she might have felt disrespected by rowdy kids laughing in the library, but I don't get why that meant she needed to call 911 and I don't get how the police can arrest somebody without first stating the arrest. Witnesses maintain that the police's abrupt appearance and unnecessary force had caused a much greater disturbance to our Thursday night learning environment than did Marcus's laughter. Not to mention the frat boys had walked past the same receptionist naked, wearing their damn snow boots. <laughs> the town hall lasted two hours. It ended when the deputy police chief and the dean of students agreed to have an independent review committee to examine the library behavior policy and police protocol. But I highly doubted this would make much of a difference. When I was writing the story, actually, I surfed up the campus newspaper article of this day. I'm there in the photo, front page, my mid-sized afro still crinkly from my braid extensions. I feel disheartened, I'm quoted as saying. I fear it will all just blow over. We had done so much to make that forum happen, but I felt exhausted and unsure if it had made any real difference. It sounded like I had quit peddling. We cleaned up after the town hall, and life on campus quickly resumed as usual. I buried myself in my schoolwork. I changed majors from English to human development, and I became a little more active in the organization of black students. Two years after the forum, I sat in the library again. I was a couple of weeks away from graduation. I was one of the serious looking upperclassmen studying on the upper level. I looked out the window, searching in that early June sky for the perfect words to conclude my thesis, and outside my window was a white boy, leaning his head into the sky and his hands buried in the hair of a girl on his knees in front of him. He pushed the girl down and took off her pants. At this point, I went to the receptionist, a young black grad student I hadn't met before. We went outside and sure enough, the couple had rolled over and were having sex in the middle of the library's lawn. We called 911. The police were there instantly. Two white cops with visors. As they approached, the white girl stood up naked from the top down and then collapsed again, intoxicated. I pulled out my phone, but this time I pressed record. I stood 10 feet away from the police officers and they posed, can you put your clothes on? Are you students here? And then they walked away. Oh, they're just students fooling around. 
It was so clearly public indecency. And again, it seemed like no one had noticed but me and the young black grad student receptionist waving our arms at sea. I saved the video and immediately wrote to the deputy police chief and dean of students. <clears throat> At approximately 1.30 p.m. on the northeast line of the library, I was interrupted by two Caucasian students engaging in vividly explicit sexual acts on the library's lawn, I began. If you will recall, two years ago, an African-American student spent the night in jail for causing a disturbance in the library. I am preparing for finals. I can handle a student laughing in the library. I cannot handle people having sex on the front lawn. It remains clear to me that the UCPD's decisions are racially governed. I wrapped up that letter in two quick few lines, and then I blasted it out like flares across a black sky over and over again, over all the email list hosts I had access to and all the group media pages. Speak up, speak up. I urged all the students to tell their own stories and write their own letters and ask questions. Who polices the police? UFC Campus Police is one of the largest private security forces in the nation. It holds jurisdiction over 36,000 residents and has public power but can legally keep, keep its books private. How is that okay? Like two years before, I went into organizing mode, assaulting the UFC through my media. And like before, I was hit back. White students commented all over my post, and I was called pervert for videotaping the students. I was mocked, ooh, the scary, angry black woman. I was angry, and y'all better find me scary. I had damn good reason to be. I had one week left of college, and I felt like it was time I left my raft. I had learned that the work of social justice lasts many lifetimes, that each conversation, each story, each town hall meeting is a stepping stone on the way to shore. Margaret was traveling while we were putting this episode together, but she still was able to record herself from the road. Here's what she had to say. I really would like to emphasize the importance of collective action and solidarity. Whatever those actions are, we need to take them together. We need to figure out a way to move together. This, this has been an issue continuously and it becomes more and more visible, but it's, it's present, it's been here. And, you know, I had forgotten about this story to listen to it today and to hear it so true so real as if it could it could have happened this past spring in fact a couple of weeks ago i i ran into a university of chicago student who graduated this spring and she told me about similar stories running with the with the ufc police that happened just this just during her time it's continuous perpetual it we have to continue to persist in our collective action uh, we just have to i really i feel such a feel so strongly about it my rage is the roof. If I were to perform this story again, or if I was to share this story again, I just I think in my own development as a as a black woman, my education at prestigious white university, you know, you code switch. There's so many things that you do to make sure that you're amenable to the white audience and to be kind of safe in this in this culture, this white supremacist culture. I feel so 
Like, I'm just going to continue to be angry and I refuse to tuck my black in. I'm, I'm done code switching. I'm done. I'm off the plantation. Our next story provides a beautiful look into the many forms of love that we experience as we grow through the stages of youth. Please welcome to the mic, Eric May. Since childhood, one of my favorite photographs of my mother is a black and white picture taken at a summer picnic when Ma was in her early 20s. She has on sunglasses. And if the shadow lines are any indication, she's looking into the late afternoon sun. Her relaxed hair is shoulder length. Her butterscotch skin, even in black and white, seems to glow. Her hands rest on shapely hips. Definitely a hottie. Her vamp pose is unlike any other photograph I've ever seen of her. In other pictures, she assumes the attitude of the honorable schoolgirl, the demure newlywed, or the conventional middle-class mother of five who was an elementary school teacher. One night a few years back, while having a beer in a saloon with my youngest brother, Mitchell, I brought up Ma's vamp photograph, how it was easy to see what had attracted our father. To this, Mitchell replied, Eric, I really don't feel comfortable talking about our mother that way. <laughs> I dropped the subject. Me reminded yet again that for most people, thoughts of mama and thoughts of sex don't mix, which I've always found odd. Now, before any of you render a Freudian judgment and banish me to Oedipus Island, let me say that as a kid, I was not walking around with lusty thoughts about my mom. Nothing beyond typical stuff like me asking, I was maybe four at the time, mommy, can I marry you when I grow up? We were in the kitchen, me standing alongside Ma, and looking up at her as she stood at the sink, rinsing off something for supper. She replying, I can't marry you, Eric. I'm already married to Daddy. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Another thing I didn't think of were any jealousies toward dad, not that day or other evenings when he'd arrive home, take Ma in his arms, usually in the kitchen, and give her an extended lip lock, she returning his affection in kind. As a young boy, I of course did not know the saucy details of what men and women did intimately, however, the sight of them kissing did register at some deeper, primal level, causing the slumbering giant that would one day be my own sexuality to turn over in its sleep and send through me a delightful little tremor. What was perfectly clear to me when she and dad's lips finally parted was that kissing him was A, something she enjoyed, B, something she wasn't the least ashamed of, and C, something that apparently was in no way incongruent with her mommy duties. She going right back to fixing supper after the smooching was done. <laughs> For me, 
Decorous female behavior and the sense of safety it gave me and desires that induced delightful tremors seemed like the most natural of combinations. And here's where we come to the effect that this sensibility had on my actions. September 1958, my maiden voyage into schoolboy life at the John D. Shute Elementary School in kindergarten I found all manner of delights. Cardboard blocks for constructing edifices that could be crawled into and then joyfully knocked down. Milk breaks, where me and the other kids pried open wax cartons shaped like tiny houses. The room's hardwood floor sported a big, big red circle where occasionally we'd line up and skip around to whatever tune our teacher, kindly white-haired Mrs. Wallace, would play on the stand-up piano. Over the years, in interviews of this or that gay celebrity, I've come across the question, when did you realize you were gay? However, I've never heard an interviewer ask a celeb of the alternate camp, when did you realize you were straight? Or perhaps, better put, when did you realize you weren't gay? For me, it was a sunny morning skipping directly behind Felicia Johnson. She wore a lime green tent dress. The lower ends of her legs housed in white anklet socks and black patent leather shoes, and she had pigtails. Such a coarse name for such lovely things. The dark tendrils floated away from the back of her head Seeing all that, I definitely felt one of those aforementioned tremors, which never happened when I skipped behind a boy classmate. Felicia was my first experience with longing that didn't involve some wished-for toy. My walks to school filled with hope that Mrs. Wallace's floating seating arrangement might place Felicia near me at coloring time, dainty fingers holding crayons or for milk break, where I gazed at the way her neck throbbed when she tilted back her head for an intake of cow juice. In a story world of my fiction writing, Felicia and I would have become a romance. However, real life had other ideas. She moved from our neighborhood a year after I met her. I never saw her again. But here's the thing. My memory of skipping behind Felicia, her fingers holding crayons, her throbbing throat, sends through me in my present-day role as the aging memorist another kind of tremor, the sort that comes from recognizing one's childhood guilelessness and where that guilelessness fits in the overall scheme of his life. Which brings us to the next such notable Infatuation, nine years after kindergarten. In September 1967, South Shore High School, where I met Cynthia Vance. She had relaxed shoulder length hair with skin the color of butterscotch, and she wore glasses. In all the years I knew her, I never heard her speak with a raised voice, 
that voice flavored with just a touch of the southern accent. As with Felicia, Cynthia was a friendly but not effusive person. Cynthia was the first girl post-puberty that I ever fantasized about marrying. What I find so amazing now is how non-salacious my thoughts of her were, me imagining she and I having a child. But no fantasies of she and I partaking in the biological activity necessary to produce one. <laughs> As to why nothing romantic ever happened between us, well, with my horn-rimmed glasses, inability to play sports, and total lack of fashion sense. To say I was painfully shy would be unfair to those people who, at the very least, can manage painful shyness. Straight-jacketed shyness was what I was. And yet, despite everything that happened, or more correctly, did not happen, <laughs> between Cynthia and I in high school, after graduation, I knew I'd meet her again one day. And I did. Five years later, I, I was in college, still living at home, when we, when we met on a CTA bus. My shyness had lessened somewhat, and we had a perfectly pleasant conversation, bringing each other up to speed on what had transpired in each other's lives since cap and gown night. After that, we became friends of a sort. No romance because she was not interested, although my now very salacious thoughts continued to hope. <laughs> we were still in touch in the late 1970s. By that time, I had my own apartment in East Rogers Park, not far from here. And one summer, I planned a two-week out-of-town vacation. Cynthia was still living in her father's house, and she asked if she could stay at my place while I was gone. I, of course, said yes. The final days of my trip spiced with thoughts and lovely tremors that maybe, just maybe, Cynthia would be waiting when I walked into my flat, waiting so she could tell me in her demure manner that she now realized that I, the man of her dreams, had been right under her nose all along. But no, uh, there was just a note thanking me. That night I went to bed alone and disappointed, which is when I discovered that the bedding reeked of Cynthia. It was a powdery sweet bouquet. I wasn't making much money back then, and that bedding was the only set I had. No way I was going to get to sleep amidst such an aroma. So I stripped the mattress, went to the laundry room, and washed the sheets and pillowcases. Free of her scent, me alone in that basement under the glow of a naked bulb. Cynthia and I grew apart after that, and I did not see her until several years after the bedding incident. By then, she was married with two children. We ran into each other on a Rogers Park side street during a neighborhood festival, her daughter, a toddler, her son, maybe four years old. We talked, but not for too long. She was on her way back to her home in Uptown. I made no offer for us to get together for coffee or such as that. She was married with children. What would have been the point? After our goodbyes, I watched her walk away, a child on either side, in either hand, and something about the way she turned to speak gently to first one, 
and then the other. Just like I'd seen my mother do numerous times with my younger siblings. The epiphany rolling out to me in all its glory. Cynthia merging imaginatively with my mother. The answer to a crucial question I hadn't realized my heart and soul had been asking. This merging a kind of confirmation that my choice to fall in love with Cynthia had been a wise one which sent a tremor through me unlike any I'd ever experienced. And if someday I write a fiction story about a guy who reunites later in life with his unrequited high school heartthrob, I'll include the Rogers Park street scene with little, if any, alteration. For it's a scene with perfect pitch. In the closing paragraph, the story's hero watches his beau ideal walk away with her two young children. She, the near twin of the first person to teach him the marvel of a woman's love, which causes him neither chagrin or shame. The beau ideal who he'll compare all subsequent lovers to, some equaling but none surpassing her, because unlike the beau ideal, the first meetings with those later loves will not occur in that merry season when a boy's newly minted sexuality and has never been in love before come together for the first and only time. Because never been in love before happens only once. His love for the unrequited heartthrob now and forever as faultless in memory as the scene before him. His beau ideal, hands in hands with her children. An idyllic image of motherhood, I know charming nonetheless. The three of them stepping from the shade of a building and into the illumination of the late afternoon sun. To his eyes in that light, her butterscotch skin seems to glow as the kids and she walk around a corner and out of his life. Yeah. It might make a good story. When asked to reflect on his story, Eric had this to say. Listening recently to the hours between mother love and a schoolboy crush from the vantage point of five years' time and being in the best relationship of my life, I can detect a sense of longing coming through way stronger in the recording than I was aware of feeling at the time I wrote and performed the piece. Uh, I was not in a relationship back in 2015, and though I was still enjoying accolades for my 2014 novel, Bedrock Faith, positive reviews, invitations to book fairs around the country, a significant literary award. At the same time, I was experiencing those delights omnia solus, eventually returning to my empty apartment where I might celebrate with a private toast, usually a finger of single malt scotch with a sprinkle of water. My current love and a 2019 second story performance, I made a passing reference to her as my darling dear, is unlike my mother and high school crush in terms of comportment, and no one would ever describe her as demure, but very much like crush and mother in terms of her intellect, strong moral compass, good humor, and kindness of heart. 
And that allows me, as I listen now to Hours Between, to take comfort in the sweet knowledge that the performance was less than a year away from having the curtain lowered on the aforementioned longing by way of an encounter with an enchanting stranger that would prove to be as fortunate as it was fortuitous. With this, we come to our final story for today. Our last story shows us how even a battle that ends with some losses may need to be fought nonetheless. Please welcome to the mic, I'm Tin. I'm cleaning the remnants of makeup and tears off my face when my father accuses me of hating my parents. That's why you don't want to live in Colorado. That's why you don't want to come home and study here and be a doctor. It's almost 1 a.m. We are three hours into this phone call, and I am tired, not just because of this conversation, but because this was Pride Weekend, my eighth Pride, my third as an out queer woman, well, out to everyone but my immediate family, and my first Dyke March. Dyke March is more low-key than the parade. No floats or gigantic balloon displays. Just women and allies marching through the streets, chanting about social justice and celebrating. After the march, I spotted an angry Asian dyke sign propped against a tree in Humboldt Park. With queer women as far as the eye could see, the sense of community was overwhelming. The rest of the weekend was a blur of rainbows, undercuts, and dancing at Backlot Bash, an outdoor queer woman party. And now, it's Sunday night. I'm exhausted and I'm on the phone responding to my parents' third in a series of increasingly angry voicemails. Hour three of this call and the joy of the weekend is almost gone. My shoulders slump against the wall, and I let the sound of the red line rushing by my apartment settle me. I'm too tired to lie. I'm not comfortable in Denver. Dad, it doesn't feel like I can be honest there. What do you mean? I think of the mantra I've been holding on to. You can't lose in a fight about your own happiness. You can't lose in a fight about your own life. So I say it. Dad, I date women and I date men. The train rumbles by. You hate men and women? I don't understand what that has to do with. <laughs> no, no, I date men and I date women. The call drops. And I remind myself of a conversation I had six months before, sitting on the eighth floor of one of Columbia College's buildings. Instead of discussing how to integrate writing and the arts into my very scientific life, I was explaining to Megan, my professor, how to be a bad Asian daughter. <laughs> Three major ways to be a bad Asian daughter. One, be queer and out. <laughs> Two, get a tattoo. Three, give up a career in medicine. I was two for three, well, one and a half, tattooed queer, but not out to my immediate family. And I desperately needed Megan to tell me how I could have a career as a writer and an artist and still salvage my good Asian daughter status. I needed to balance my own well-being 
and the respect my parents deserved. To be clear, before this conversation with Megan, before the breakup, I had already planned to come out by bringing Liv, my girlfriend who was busy committing polite Vietnamese phrases to memory, to my parents for Christmas. Because what are the holidays if not an opportunity for awkward shock silences and raising my mother's blood pressure? But Liv and I weren't together anymore, and now I had to work the holidays and wouldn't be flying to Denver. My mother is the oldest of 11, 10 girls and one boy. Eight of her sisters live in Colorado, along with my grandparents and an ever-growing brood of cousins bookended by my 39-year-old brother and my two-month-old cousin. Between the four generations running around the home, there's enough drama for several seasons of a terrible reality TV show. <laughs> well, only if the American public is willing to read subtitles. <laughs> All the children in my generation were expected to achieve. We needed to become doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, engineers, professions that would honor the sacrifices our parents made when they fled communist Vietnam the years in government housing, the 18-hour workdays. I then explained to Megan the hierarchy of good Asian daughterhood. At the top, straight doctor followed by a straight pharmacist or dentist, which was about level with a queer doctor, straight engineer here, straight lawyer much lower, and the queer tattoo artist that I was becoming equivalent to a criminal. Being a queer doctor would end up with my disowning. But I had a chance of being welcomed back if I put on that white coat. Medicine was my compromise. Megan pulled me away from my spiraling thoughts. What are the things you need to be happy in your job? What are your deal breakers? financial stability, the opportunity for community engagement I believed in, time to write. I can fit it in, I said. I'll write after I finish my MD and my PhD and my residency. I'll find the time. Who needs sleep? But how would I? So much of my time was already spent dreading the very idea of being a doctor Every day, I pushed back the lump in my throat and ignored a churning in my stomach and the tension in my shoulders. Megan told me, you can't lose in a fight that's about your own life. You can't lose when it's about your own happiness. She was right. I couldn't lose in this fight. But there was more than one, more than one way I could shatter my parents' image of me. And I wasn't brave enough to do both at once, not without Liv. Being queer would be harder to explain without a flesh and blood woman at my side. So the doctor battle first. I realized that December, I was committing. I was going to be a bad Asian daughter. After that conversation with Megan, the first time I spoke to my parents was New Year's Day. It slipped out. I didn't really have it planned. I can be dramatic. 
but I didn't have it planned. Mom, I have something to tell you. I don't want to be a doctor. Silence on the line, nothing for 30 seconds. Your father needs to come to the phone. In the seconds before my father arrived and the first of many hours of yelling and guilt trips began, I felt this wave of relief wash over me. For the next several months, my parents tag-teamed one another in having discussions with me about my future and my lost potential. But I was feeling gleeful and free, ready to shed my research job as soon as my contract ended. I rode that wave of joy all the way to Pride Month, to this conversation about my sexuality with my father. I redial. Dad? You date men and you date women? Yeah. We've talked about a lot of things today. Let's talk tomorrow night. Click. <laughs> the next night, my father starts out so well. You were always so independent and strong as a child. <laughs> then it goes south. Maybe you want to date women because you need someone to take care of. Why do you even think you're interested in women? Probably for some of the same reasons you are, Dad. <laughs> he fervently wants me to go to therapy, but he promises that if I'm sure, it's okay because I'm his daughter and he loves me no matter what. I'm elated, even if he doesn't want to tell my mother yet, because I've never expected my Republican father to make that much progress in one conversation. You can't lose in a fight about your own happiness. Maybe it's more than not giving up. Maybe winning is inevitable. Fast forward six months after that call. It's the day after Christmas, and my mother is driving me to the airport to fly home to Chicago. I'm replaying last night's conversation where my father instructed me not to come out to my mother because he believed it would hurt her more than it would help me. A woman sings about loving another woman on the radio, and I segue into a discussion about the separation between gender presentation and sexuality. I hate women, Mom. I wear dresses. It doesn't matter. The silence is longer than when I told her I wasn't going to be a doctor. She moves to the express lane. You said you date women? Yes. We're not looking at each other. We're staring at the cars around us, at the dashboard, at anything but me biting my lips and her furrowed brow. She turns off the radio. My mother spends the next 35 minutes hitting every cliche in the book. I'm confused. It's a phase. Chicago is a city of sin. <laughs> Predatory lesbians. I haven't met the right man. I'm seeking attention. None of them are sticking, so she switches up her tactics, delivering a combination of insults, skin thumb, threats, your father would die if he knew 
and irrational explanations. You're so desperate for friends and partners that you think this will make it easier. Clearly, she's never actually tried to date women. I don't blame her. This is a surprise for her. It's a shock, another in a year of unsettling news from my lips. Another check mark in that bad Asian daughter list. She pulls up in front of the terminal entrance. I'm brushing the tears away and telling her that I can answer any questions when she's ready. She doesn't even let me finish before she tells me that I'm not her daughter anymore. It's expected, but that doesn't make the whiskey on the plane go down any smoother. Two months later, the same day I get an offer for a job that will finally allow me to completely escape medicine, my father reverses his opinion and joins her. I may have lost my mother temporarily or permanently, who knows. I may have lost my father too. I've definitely lost any chance of being a good Asian daughter. But this summer, I got to walk home holding hands with the woman I had fallen in love with. I got to share a bottle of wine and debate and sigh over the L words Bet and Carmen before watching Orange is the New Black. I got to trade lazy kisses with her until she remembered that I was supposed to be writing and she teasingly banned me from her lips until I finished a draft. Now, I get to be honest. I get to love. I get to love not just the people around me, but I get to love what I do. I get to write. You can't lose in a fight about your own happiness. You can't lose in a fight about your own life. When asked to reflect on her story, Aimee had this to say. This is my second story with second story, which I just think is a fun fact. Since 2015, I've told this story dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I think back to what my curators said during the course of writing this story, is that at second story, we get to choose when the story ends because life always goes on. We keep on living the story. And it was a reminder for me to get to choose where it ended because even as I was writing it, the story was changing. The relationships were changing. And now five years later, my relationship with my parents was, looks a lot different. My relationship with that woman no longer exists. But people are still able to find truth in it, joy in it, wisdom in it, sadness in it, all these things. And what I love about the work we do at Second Story is our stories are so anchored in time and place, but their reach is long. And that's the beauty of a good story. Thank you for joining us for 200 episodes, and here's to 200 more. 
This show was produced by Ryan Stanfield, curated by Megan Shuckman and Reshmi Hazra Rustabaki, directed by Reshmi Hazra Rustabaki with music and sound design by The Prismatics. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden Arps, Late Meager and Flome, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.